Hello and welcome to the Sovereign Collective Podcast, where we bring you real raw truth for your self-empowerment. I'm your host, Sasha Calavota, and I believe that you can stand on your own two feet, but that you don't have to do it alone. I love learning from people who continually strive to raise the bar, to go against mainstream thinking, and who dare to question the general consensus. People are risking ridiculed or even risk the loss of their professional status as they bravely question the common narratives and challenge the rest of us to expand our minds and to reconsider what we think we already know. Join me in learning how to take control of your health and your mind so that you can have the energy to think more clearly and the confidence to step up and take responsibility for all aspects of your life. We promise to never censor here because I believe you are strong enough to hear the real raw truth to make up your own mind. If you like what you find here at the Sovereign Collective Podcast, then please share with your friends and family. And please also consider making a small donation on my Patreon page so that I can continue to bring you amazing content so that we can all create a better future. I so appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in. And now, on to the show. Hi, everyone. This is Sasha Calavoto with another episode of the Sovereign Collective Podcast, where we bring you real raw truth for your self-empowerment. And today, my guest is Brett Hawes. Brett knew from an early age that something was up in the Western world in terms of health and wellness. After spending many years with Indigenous cultures and learning their practices and learning about their medicine, and then getting his first job as a maintenance man in a nursing home, he clearly saw the contrast there in the terms of quality and care and quality of life. He knew his path was natural medicine, and in the last 16 years, he has studied functional medicine, nutrition, iridology, detoxification, Ayurveda, energy medicine, homeopathy, energy psychology, and more. He now has a Holistic Health Masterclass platform, which you can find at holistic-health-masterclass.com. And there you can access his private practice, online programs, his blog and podcast, and more. Brett is a super wealth of knowledge and of experience, and I am excited to talk today on the topic of building resilience. So thank you, Brett, Mm. for joining me today. Super appreciate your time. It is great to be here, and uh, I'm interested to see where our conversation is going to go because um, we're kind of uh, looking at things through a much broader lens. So uh, I'm going to let you take it away, and let's just let it flow organically and see where we land up. Well, you said you like talking about the the topic of building resilience, which I think is extremely appropriate at this time, because it's become very clear, and I've kind of alluded to this in my past interviews, is that we're not robust, we don't have confidence in taking care of ourselves, we expect to listen to the so-called experts out there, which are giving us, uh, some of them are giving us very questionable information and we aren't resilient. It's very clear that we're not resilient. And I think what the practices that have been put in place right now to protect us are really gonna break down that resilience and even make us weaker. So from your perspective, what does that look like to you? And Let's, let's get into what does it take to actually build resilience and what does resilience look like? Well, you know, I think that there's, when I think of resiliency, I think there's two different forms of resiliency, if you want to look at it that way. I think there's individual resiliency, right? So being resilient yourself as an individual, but then I think there's also a collective resilience. And what I feel that this pandemic has shown us and everything else is that our systems that we have in place And the things that we've built around us are extremely fragile. Mm. And, you know, it didn't take much to just, you know, the whole house of cards to blow over, right? And whether you want to talk about financial resiliency, whether you want to talk about health, um, you know, the systems, the politics, the environment, like all of these things now 
um, we're starting to see the cracks in in broken systems uh, that have been running for a really long time that have sort of run their course. I think from an individual perspective, though, um, you know, in working with First Nations people for so long and living with them, you know, I lived with First Nations people here on and off anyway for the better part of six or seven years. And I remember uh, 10 or 12 years ago, you know, we, we spoke around the fire and we said, there's a great wave of depression coming. And as a young guy, I didn't understand what that meant. You know, I was like, what do you mean there's a great wave of depression? We said, the reason why there's going to be depression is, is because people are going to one day realize that the things that we've built around ourselves are an illusion mm. and that they're very, very susceptible to fracture, to falling apart and so forth. And that the reality that you think is out there is perhaps not the reality that's actually going on. And I think there's no better time to have a look at that um, statement and that experience. You know, I keep coming back to that experience uh, in this time because take a look around, you know, what's going on. Um, Everything that we think to be true. That's what I'm challenging people. Just, just consider and be open to the fact that maybe most of what you learned is either a lie or in some form, not true right? What yeah. you learned in school, what you learned about how the body works, what you learned about the medical system, what you learned about vaccination, what you learned about the, the monetary system, all of it, right? What you learned about who wrote history and what you learned in history. We open to perhaps knowing that that might not be true. Mostly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, um, for me personally, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't want to um, sort of straw man the whole thing and say, oh, well, everything's a lie and it's all a bunch of BS, right. you know, because I don't think that's fair either. But I think that, you know, we're living in an age of um, information saturation, but we're also living in an age of, you know, we're required to have much heightened discernment right now. We need to be able to discern fact from fiction. And when you look at the, you know, I always say to people, it's like drinking from a fire hose, right? You know, that is what we're doing right now with information coming at us. And when you double down with that, with things like censorship, with narratives, with um, political biases and so forth, you know, if you're just watching the TV and listening to mainstream media and reading your newspaper on a Saturday morning, you are definitely getting a one-sided picture to what is going on. And I would say you can pretty much say that about anything out there you know, whether you want to talk about health, um, wealth, whether you want to talk about politics, whatever it is, because what we started to see over the last, I mean, how many years now, but especially over the last 30 years, is we've seen the hijacking of institutions, of politics, of governments, we've seen the hijacking by corporations. And, you know, the big tech companies now, your Googles, your Facebooks, your Twitters, and so forth, they're all in bed with all of the stuff, you, you know, so, so even now, it's one thing to sort of say, well, look, a newspaper, like, I don't know, like the National Post, right, the National Post is well known as a left leaning newspaper, um, whereas the Globe and Mail is more of a right leaning newspaper, right? Th those two newspapers, I mean, if there was no social media, you're going to get two very different pictures coming out of those newspapers, right? right? But now with social media, you just you've got a whole nother layer that is now being censored as well. And I think what we're starting to see is that people have really, really lost a lot of faith in the institutions um, of, of the world. You know, whether you want to look at government institutions or medical institutions or the regulatory agencies like the FDA, the CDC, and so on, you know, pe people have lost faith um, in those right. systems. Right. 
And I keep trying to pull out the silver linings of what is going on right now. And I think one of the things that could be is that we always look to outside for information, for guidance, for being told what to do. And hopefully with the crumbling of where we look to for that historically, hopefully that'll turn us more within and retune with the inner knowing and the inner intuition. Because we, for me, at the deepest level, as soon as this all started, I'm like, this is not what it appears to be because I've always looked to and I try to not saying I've got it all perfect but right away from the get-go it's like oh boy here we go and then when they pushed it longer than the normal pandemics or whatever risks or threats in the past yeah you could tell there's something on so hopefully people will start turning back into themselves well I think that you know just pointing us back towards resiliency, I think one of the things that we're going to be seeing moving forward is the need for community. You know, if you look at what we've done is, is we've really fractured society, right? You know, historically speaking, you all knew your neighbors, um, you know, you uh, hung out with your neighbors, you relied on your neighbors, you relied on your community, but now I don't have to leave my house. I can get groceries delivered to my front door. I can buy anything I want off Amazon. Um, I can watch movies, I can do whatever I want. I don't actually have to leave my house at all. I, I've become wholly reliant on technology only. And I think that what we're going to see moving forward is this need for community building. And, and I'm talking about real community building. You know, I think online communities are great. But I think that we're going to start to see people, much like we did in the wake of things like the Great Depression and the World Wars, you, you know, we people people really came together. Um, to help one another through difficult times. And, and I think that that's going to be a core feature of building resiliency as we move forward. It has to be, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We know that. We know that. And I think, I mean, that's obviously intentional. We're much stronger together. We're stronger when we collaborate. We're stronger when we exchange services and skills. We're stronger that way. So why is it that that's under attack? potentially it's intentional so let's okay so let's look at building resilience in a culture what would you would be the main points how does one become individually resilient how does a population of people build that resiliency well i i think i think um you know let's talk about the larger picture first right i mean we all obviously need to understand a little bit more about what's what's going on first of all but i always liken it to um old growth forests, right? You know, I've always looked outwards and then looked at the macrocosm and look at the microcosm. And we're really just living in a fractal hologram, if you will, you know, there's all the, the micro stuff down to your DNA is very much made of the same elements that make up the entire universe, right? So the way I look at, at um, what I'm getting at is diversity, okay? So if you look at an old growth forest, right? An old growth forest. Um, I've been to forests around the world. Some of them will have 125, 126 species of trees in that forest. So that, that diversity actually creates resiliency, right? Because can you imagine if I had a beetle, for example, that came along and like took down one tree and let's just for argument's sake, say it was a Douglas fir tree, right? Well, if there were Douglas firs and there were oaks and there were maples and there were um, cypress trees and all the, well, okay, you know what? So we lost the Douglas firs, you know, oh well, but we've got 125 other trees to keep the forest alive. And the same is true now what we're seeing in the microbiome, for example, right? The, the microbiome, the, the bacterial fungi viral colony that lives in and on us, we're starting to see now um, from a health perspective that the more diversity you have in your gut bacteria and the higher the numbers, the more resilient you are. 
So I think that, you know, when you look at that on a macro level, I think that we're going to have to start relying, again, coming back to community, is looking to play to your strengths, you know, so what is it like, what, you know, if you think about it like this, if I wake up tomorrow morning, and the lamppost outside my house fell over, right, the light fell over and the wires broke, is the government coming to fix that? Is, is it the politician? Is it the MP? Yeah. Is he coming out and fixing that? No, not at all. It's guys that are going to come from whoever, from Hydro One or whatever company, but it's the people that actually get out there and put the pole back up, rewire everything, make sure it's working. Okay, so you're going to find in a community that there's a lot of people with different skills and different skill sets. And as we get further and further into this pandemic, and there's more job losses, and there's more financial losses, and people really start to go, holy shit, what is going on? Um, I think that we're going to have to turn to our neighbors, and we're going to have to start going, you know what, do you have a log splitter? So that I can like, cut some logs, you know what I mean? Can you help me out? Sure. And, and I think that that's, again, you know, I'm a huge fan of um, decentralization. I've always been a huge fan of decentralization because I feel like decentralization empowers local communities to do what's right for them versus subscribing to maybe more of a federal or a global um, policy. You know, I always say, can you imagine trying to in, in, initiate the same policies for lobster fishermen in Nova Scotia and wheat farmers in the prairies. I mean, it's like completely different lives, right? right? So you can't have the same policy. So I think that that's gonna be another feature as well is, is to decentralize things, to really get small scale, get community building going and start talking to each other and start relying on one another. Um, I think that's that's a core feature moving forward. And if you think about it historically, it's always been like that. You, you know, we're actually going back to something that we've always done for thousands of years. Right. And I think on so many levels, it's about going back to what we used to do. People get, get so dogmatic and they get so worried and get so stuck in the minutia of everything when it comes to what should I eat or what, you know, that we, we just have to step back and say, what did we have to do? Because that's what nature dictated. That's what yeah. we had access to. Yeah. And I think another thing is, um, you know, we might also very well see the simplification of life. Um, you know, there's a lot of people now uh, who who are stuck at home, you know, unemployment rates are sky high. And uh, there's, I think anyway, this is what I think. I think that we're really being questioned and asked to look at what our priorities are, at what is important, uh, what really gives our lives meaning. You know what I mean? Because there's so much distraction going on out there that a lot of people are wrapped up in distraction and we kind of forget what's right in front of us you know we forget what life is about um so i think that maybe on more on a more personal or individual level i think that's um, definitely something that a lot of people are are looking at right now you know what's uh, i think there was there were articles that were published um a few months ago now where they started polling young people particularly and they started saying hey now that you're stuck at home or now that you've lost your job or whatever what do you think and one of the common answers that they came up with was, yeah, I've really questioned what I'm doing here. Oh. Like, why am I here? Like, what is, yeah. my, what is my life about? You know, because I think so much of what we do perhaps doesn't bring value and meaning to our lives. Uh, you know, it's, it's just the sort of like treadmill mentality of uh, doing the same thing over and over or going to the dead end job or, you know, and, and you spend a lot of your time doing that without really evolving uh, on a more conscious or a higher level, um, or even just figuring out what makes you happy, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. He's, we kind of get stuck and you just have your head down, bum up, and you just don't even realize that you're stuck on that wheel, right? Until one day you're like, wow, is that what it was all for? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So, so other, so other than building community, which is huge. And I, I, there was a post the other day that I just read. It's like, when you're, we're we're in the snitch culture now, right? We're worried about our neighbor snitching on us, but when you need a cup of sugar, when you need a tire changed, when you need a boost, who's going to come? Is it the government that's going to come to get you or save you? Or it's it's your neighbor, it's your community, it's your friends, right? So we have to remember that we're so if we would just back out and look to see what we've become in so short of time, like people, do you mm-hmm. remember what life was like 10 months ago? People, I, I don't think we do. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. So building the community, what would be another factor for billion building resiliency? Well, I think also let's then look at, at individual resiliency, right? You know, I always ask people, what would, how would you be on the worst day of your life? Okay. How, how would you be on the worst day of your life? Right. And I think that for those of us with children, uh, for those of us with partners, with families and so forth, you know, we're, we're, and I'm not trying to, you know, foresee or cast doom and gloom here, but I think it's going to be a long winter in Canada for a lot of people. Okay. I think it's going to be a long winter. It's already been a long summer for a lot of people. I'm in Ontario right now and the unemployment rates are, uh, I think it's almost 11% of the population which um, translates when you factor for age and all that sort of stuff, you're looking at close to a million people that are unemployed. Right. Um, and that's like unemployed, but then let's not even talk about the other people that are financially ruined, that have gone into debt, the small businesses that are not going to be opening back up and so on. And I think as we head into winter, um, you know, maybe we'll talk about cold and flu season and the new cases, uh, we can get into that. But I think that what we're going to see is, um, there's going to be a much greater need for internal composure, right? To, to really think, and it's not easy. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not like some, you know, sadhu or uh, some Buddhist monk or whatnot. Uh, I, I have my own challenges and, and hiccups and I'm in this with everyone else. But I always say to people, you know, if um, just, just really, um, we can talk about physical health as well, but I think mindset is a huge um, aspect of all of this, right? is just don't forget who's around you. And don't forget that oftentimes when we're called to serve, we're called to serve something that's much bigger than us. And I think the first people that you can serve are your children. You know, yeah. so, so being there and being strong for your children, no matter how rough things get, is, is um, part of it, right? And, you know, there's, I mean, there's all sorts of tools out there and I definitely don't want to sugarcoat anything. But I can tell you that even simple, like guided meditation, five to 10 minutes a day, um, getting out into nature, you know, I moved out into the country five years ago, give or take, and I've never looked back, you know, I've got forest all around me, I've got nature all around me, and that keeps you grounded, it keeps you, keeps your feet on the floor. Um, I think that we also have to be very careful about what information we bring into our psyche. Uh, I think that's a huge part in this time of building resiliency because what social media does and the algorithms out there do is they corral everyone into an echo chamber. Okay. So if you think, and they've done studies on this, which is very interesting, right? So what they've done is they've taken people who are, um, I think it was a U.S. study. They took people who were um, uh, Democrats, right? And they took people who were Republicans and they were all from the same city. I believe it was Boulder, Colorado. They took them all from the same city 
So these people all live in the same environment. They go to the same stores. They're all in the, immersed in the same culture. And what they did was they basically put everyone into groups, right, online. And it turns out that at the end of the study, the more radical views were amplified. Oh. Okay. So if you had a few radical people in that group, what would happen is they would talk about it and then other people would go, whoa, that's crazy, right? Because we live in an, an outrage culture. We live in a culture that wants to be pissed, that wants to be angry. And so when you have that going on and then you now think that, well, I click it, well, great. The algorithm says, oh, you like that? Well, let's show you more. And we're going to show everyone else more as well, right? So now what happens is the, the collective mentality starts getting into that and it all gets amplified to the point where your own intuition and your own discernment becomes extremely clouded, like extremely clouded. And I think you only have to take a look around, go scroll on your newsfeed for five minutes um, today and, and go and see who's around you. You know, who's around you? Who, who, who are the people that you're hearing from? And I think you'd be quite surprised to see that you are not hearing a whole half of the picture. You're, you're just seeing what, what you want to see is just being echoed back to you and you're being connected with the same people. So I've always made, this is part of my sort of resiliency plan. I've always made a point of reading things that I don't agree with. Okay, I read things that are very um, counter to what I actually think. And I think it's a very good exercise in mental and cognitive resilience so that what we can do is we can actually start going, okay, you know what? I kind of know why you, I see what you mean now, right? I, I, I think I get it. As much as I don't agree with it, I understand why you think like that. And I think that what we're starting to see now is we've completely lost that ability altogether. Now it's like, just again, go and look at your newsfeed, right? You just got people pointing fingers and they're like, you people that think this stuff is a conspiracy theory are all completely crazy. And you go, you people wearing masks that think the benevolent government is just doing their absolute best to control this deadly virus. Well, you're crazy, right? And it just keeps going and you're more and more and more divided as time goes on. So part of mental resiliency is going and trying to understand what the other people or what other people are thinking and why they believe that i'll share a very cool story with you it was very crazy at the time but it was it's a pretty cool story so when i left uh, i left school shortly after my 18th birthday and i joined the military i was a diver in the navy oh, wow. and uh, yeah so i was on ships for a couple of years i got to see some pretty cool places but the the year that we uh, the year that i joined the navy i didn't have to go Okay, so there was a lot of change in South Africa, which is where I'm originally from. And Nelson Mandela had just been released from prison the, oh, wow. the, year, that, the year that I finished school, right? So uh, what happened was after that, we go, we'll go to the Navy, we'll go to basic training. And now these forces, these resistance forces, okay? So you've got all these different tribes, you've got the different um, factions and whatever that have been fighting each other for like 400 years. And now all of a sudden they say, all right, you're all in the same dorm. There you go. Get on. You can imagine what would have happened, right? I mean, there were knife fights in the cafeteria. It was wow. crazy town for, uh, for the first while. But here's what happened. We all realized that we were in the pressure cooker together. Because if you didn't pull your weight or if someone fell behind, you all got punished. Right? You all got drilled on the beach at five in the morning until you puked. You all spent two days out on the life raft in the freezing cold water. So what it, the point that I'm getting at here is we came to this realization 
as a group of young men who are from all different backgrounds that we needed to really celebrate our uh, our commonalities and our differences okay so coming back to diversity once again so we started to speak with one another we started to understand and we realized that our parents and our grandparents had fed us a whole bunch of bullshit over all these years and that the government was stoking the fire with their propaganda and you realize that when you boil it all down that you're just people right you're just people if you cut each other you bleed you all have dna you all have the same things you all have the same hang-ups going on and i think most people just want to be left alone to carry on with their life all right that, that's that's it and um, that's getting harder and harder to do yes, so yes. anyway so um yeah so so i think that um really helping to understand one another is going to be part of collective resiliency uh, moving forward so how do we overcome that? I had this conversation with somebody else as well. How do we overcome? There's such a divide right now and everybody thinks they're so right. And I think there's more truth in certain areas than other, but how do you bring this population together? Because we're, it's so easy to, and there's been so many efforts to divide us clearly with BLM and with the mask. And, and like now we have that visual with the mask wearers and the non-mask wearers. And yeah. how do you, how do we, how do we meet? How do you know, we what? get out there and talk to real people. Get get away from behind your keyboard and go and speak to real people. Because you know what? Behind your keyboard, you're a warrior, right? I call them keyboard right. warriors. You can just <laughs> yeah. type whatever the hell you want. And you're never going to see what that person's expression is like. You don't know what you did to them. You don't know how they feel or anything like that. You try and take that same behavior and you go and say it to someone to their face. And I guarantee you, you will have a very difficult time doing that. So I have friends, I've got family with, that don't agree with what I believe in. 100% they don't. But do we just say, oh, well, screw you. Like, I'm never talking to you again. Of course not, right? It's, it's family, it's friends. And I know that we've all lost friends, 100%. I've definitely lost some people along the way here. But I think that, um, you know, you're right. And, and I don't have a good answer for you. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that I have the solution or that it's easy at all. But... Um, I think that, you know, really, again, the two, the two things is just um, anyone listening to this, go and read things that you don't agree with and get out there and talk to real people. Because, you know, we've done marches down here. Um, there was a big one this last weekend. It was, they say on the low end was 4,000 people. Some people said it was around 7,000. The streets were blocked off. And it's interesting because when you start seeing other people that are not there for the protest, they're just there. They just happen to be there, you know. And all of a sudden they go, oh, okay, hang on a second. These people are talking about something. All right. And then you see someone, you know, masks versus no masks, whatever. And people start asking questions. And yeah. you actually start finding that people go, oh, okay, cool. Now I know what people are talking about. This is not just about like, oh, we just don't want to wear masks or whatever. It's, it's, there's, there's just a whole nother, like infinite amount of deeper layers that go behind that. But for a lot of people, they don't know. You know, they just simply go, well, we've been told to wear a mask. And if you don't wear a mask, then uh, you're, you know, we're going to infect other people with the virus. Who wants to do that? And it's like, maybe that's not the whole picture. That's not, that's not why people are here, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> yeah, well, but those gathers are important. And that's also been difficult, right? People aren't gathering and there are, so yeah. we've had some gatherings here in Calgary. We still haven't had that many come out. But yeah. I watched that one in from Toronto. It was great. And then and Rocco Gladi was on fire when his his oh, talk. Gosh, yeah. And then there's Vancouver that had this same one and they had a whole bunch of great names piped in. 
And it's interesting to watch how they spun it. There was an open letter in Vancouver talking about how it's organized by neo-Nazis and white supremacists, and yep. there's going to be violence and things. And if anybody, hopefully there were some bystanders there that weren't there for any specific purpose other than they just happened to be there, they could see it was a gathering of minds, of open minds and of love and unity and it had nothing to do with what was being spun. And I, I couldn't, and that's the thing. And it's such a good advice, I think, to read this things that you don't agree with because my husband is great at that and he actively participates in that. And yeah. I have a really hard time because I feel, and when I read that letter, it's like, whoo, this is part of my own yeah. personal development because I could just feel the temperature rising. And, or, or my husband tells me to watch Justin Trudeau when he's speaking. I'm like, I can't. I mean, I, I physically want to throw up. I, I can't. He's like, this is why you need to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know? And I, think, I um, it's a challenge. Yeah, you know, there's, there's this, uh, you know, we're all human beings, right? We're all fallible. We all have, you know, our own emotional um, intellect and, and we feel things in that way. And of course, we all, like, I get, I get upset. I get angry at the same time. But um I think that, you know, when you take a step back from things and you understand from a broader perspective that things are being spun, that things are what you're reading in the newspaper is not correct. It's not true. Because again, who has the agenda, right? Do you think, you know, we get into this a lot, you see it in the, in the vaccine space, right? So people will say, oh, you're anti-vaxxers, this and that, like, look at you, you have an agenda. I've if you even heard them go so far as to say, these people are well-funded and heavily organized. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. A bunch of like moms and dads who are trying to fight the establishment. Do you think we have oodles of money? Do right. you think we've got like giant PR yeah. campaigns and newspapers that are doing what we need to do? No, the people that, that are controlling the agenda are the ones with infinite amounts of money. Indeed. They're the ones that will tie things up with red tape in the legal system and so on and so on and so on. So, you know, coming back to what you were saying, yeah, I, I also read those reports. And what's interesting is that's now percolated onto social media, right? So cognitive bias is a very real thing. And so you'll see very smart people, very smart people, very loving people, very progressive people that will look at things and they will go, oh my God, look at this. These, this was just not, in Canada, no less. Anyway, this was a pro-Trump rally, first of all. <laughs> care about trump like this is canada like what right. are you talking about? yeah pro, pro trump pro police anti-blm i mean you, you just check all the boxes right all the boxes and that's what it was about and you you know you go there and i will tell you you know hopefully anyone listening to this if you've heard that let me tell you who was actually there okay there was a bunch of mothers and fathers who are deeply concerned about what's coming down the pipeline with mandatory vaccinations in their children there's that there were old people there the amount of old people was astounding. I couldn't believe it, actually. People in wheelchairs, no less, wow. rolling up. The most vulnerable of our population showing up to support this because guess what? Their parents and grandparents were the ones who fought in the wars so that we could have the freedom that we have right now. And the virus is the new, the, the, the new enemy. That's all. It's an invisible enemy. So what you're finding now, uh, so, so these, these people were showing up as well, right, to show support. They're like, hey, we are here to protect rights and freedoms. That's why we're here. There were Amish people, okay? A lot of Amish people, a lot of Mennonites, um, uh, Hasidic Jews even got up on the stage and spoke. Yes, I saw that. Christian pastors, right? So Christian, uh, Catholic, I believe, I'm not sure, but Christian pastors were there. 
all right so you've got health and wellness experts doctors are there lawyers are there so for anyone to just smear and brand this this movement and what is going on out there as just some right-wing conspiracy whatever it's you you, you got to unplug from the media i'm sorry to say but that's the only because there's no other place that you're going to get that information from because the media percolates down into social media and the people who believe in that will parrot it and what's what's crazy to me is you've got people that are making these judgments out there on social media that have never been to one of these they've never even been but they they know but but somehow they know somehow they know who was there and it's like but you you didn't even go so so um and what i'm starting to see now is also this whole idea the the cancel culture is is really really bubbling up as well you know where if you attended that well then you are branded as a certain person and you should then be doxxed you know you should be doxxed you should be cancelled you should be whatever and i think that we're going to start seeing that that is going to become more of a problem um, moving forward because you're starting to see some of the uh, even some of the advertising now for this right i don't know if you saw the poster um i the on the on the side of the bus shelter or the... options yes i did yeah which one are you right so right. so so th- this this creation of otherness right? so this... for people who haven't seen that yeah there's a poster i think it's on the side of bus stops with either you're not wearing a mask, you're wearing it properly, you're wearing it under your nose, you're wearing it under your chin. And this means that you are this type of person based on the way that you're wearing your mask. Right. Yeah. And there's only I one mean, good person in that. Right? Of course, the, the person who's wearing it properly. Right. right. So, so, so this, this, um, this pushing forward of otherness, I mean, if you just look at it at the surface, all you're doing, you're creating division. I mean, there's now four different types of people, right? There's no unification. There's no common ground. You identify with whichever person and that's being rammed down your throat on a bus stop. Okay. Now, when you, um, if you look at a poster like that and you look at some of the media that's coming forward and some of the um, advertising that's coming forward, you, you'd be, first of all, that bus stop would never, ever have got approved through an ad agency. Like if, if you ran that through through the proper channels of advertising and marketing to get that approved, that came from somewhere else that did not come from a private corporation or a private advertising agency. There's no way. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when you pay attention to the imagery that they use, when you're paying attention to the types of people, right? So is, are we using females or, you know, so a lot of times we'll use, oh, well, the white females will be used to, to push one idea, but then we will have immigrants um, families, right, or a mother with a child to push a different message, right. So the messaging is becoming very um, interesting these days, and I think it's important for pay t- for people to pay attention to the messaging that they're seeing around us, because um, that's really going to heavily influence your own um, psyche, especially if you're not if you don't understand what you're looking at. You're just going to identify with one of those people and go, oh my gosh, I don't want to be the other person, right? right. I, better do what, I better do what I'm told. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard, man. I tell you, it's hard. Because if you take a look around, um, most people, you know, we, we don't want to be the odd person out. I don't want to get into a confrontation and fight with people when I go to the grocery store. Like, come on. No one wants that. I don't want to, but I'm willing to. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to. Yeah. But it, it's, it's, it's been, it's, we were losing our humanity pretty quickly. I had a friend who I actually interviewed uh as re- like uh, coming back to first of all anti-master athletes and anti-vat and anti-vaxxers or whatever these yeah. words i tell people first of all they don't just become anti this just to be that there's yeah. a reason behind it there is uh there's 
education and researching and curiosity and perhaps a very negative experience that led that person to become that way. And it's and to call it anti something is a very negative spin rather than how about pro informed choice or pro education or pro, you know, actually having access to the air that I have every right to breathe kind of thing. But anyways, I'm trying but anyway, so I interviewed yeah. her because she had a vaccine damaged child, but she she's very committed to her not wearing a mask and to the message she's given to her children, which I think is a really good message that you mentioned is being strong and resilient for our children. Because yeah. I'm really concerned about the future of our children for a future of our babies all the way yep. on up. But she got attacked at one of our grocery stores here. Like she's not attacked physically, but just there was one guy that came, then another woman who said that she had to put her mask on, that she was a judge and it is the law. My goodness, God help us mm. if a judge mm thinks this is a law and that you can be forced to wear a mask. The two managers came, told her that she had to leave the store when the poster clearly states right on the front of the store that you can't be discriminated against if you're not wearing a mask. So we're trying to enforce things that don't even exist. And then we have yeah. all these vigilantes coming in and banding together. And she felt, and she held her ground, good for her. Cause like you said, it's not easy. People don't want that. I go there to hopefully give one other person a bit of strength to realize that okay, maybe I don't have to wear the mask because there's a lot of people wearing masks that don't want to wear them. And I'm yeah. hoping to not, I don't want to get into a fight with anyone, but I'm hoping to just inspire one more person. Well, I, th I think that, and I totally agree with that. Um, I, I get it. I think that when you zoom out from all of this though, we really need to sharpen up our critical uh, thinking skills well, because I feel like they're completely absent at this point um, because there's the emotional investment into a certain narrative right and what i'm starting to see now is that people get you know like look let's wind the clock way back to the beginning the first two weeks flatten the curve i i, I think you would be hard pressed to find anyone that didn't go along with it because they were like holy smokes we got this virus we don't know what it is like holy shit let's just do what we can right Let, let's just do what we can stay home let's do it right and then two weeks goes by and then oh it's gonna be i knew from day one i was like I said to my family, I was like, this is going to, we're in for the long haul here. There's no way this is going to be two weeks turned into five weeks. Okay. Now I think last time I checked, we're on day 214 or 215. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Around there. So my point in all of, in saying that is I think that collectively we were probably all in agreement at one point. We all said, you know what? We're dealing with a contagion. We don't know what this is. Let's be safe. Let's protect one another. Let's do it. Right. But I think that now hindsight is always 2020, right? So we need to now really take a look back and now say, what, what have we seen, right? Because you can't just keep parroting the same narrative over and over and over and over and over. I guess you can. I mean, that's what the news does. But if you actually go and look at what's going on you, you, and, you, and you actually look at the numbers and you look at what's happening out there, you, you, there should be some serious alarm bells that are going off in people's head. You know, plain and simple, there should be serious alarm bells. I think the thing that since, you know, let's just hop into some of the stuff, I think, because, you know, now you're just seeing, oh, masks versus no masks. Okay, for me, that's just, I'm, I'm like, whatever, you know, you're, you're still fixated, you're fixated very much on a virus. That, that's what you're fixated on, right? And I'm like about 10 steps ahead, because I see that this is no longer about a virus. That's not what this is about that's anymore awful. at all. It hasn't been for a very long time. So I think that what we're, um, What's happening out there is most people are still thinking about virus, 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 right? And the problem with that is that, first of all, 
um, now we're starting to see, I call it a case-demic. So we're actually in a case-demic right now. We're not in a pandemic at all. Um, we're starting to see now that the testing is ramping up. So I think here in Ontario, they're doing 20 to 30,000 tests a day. Wow. And we're starting to see the numbers go up, right? How many new cases oh, a day are they announcing? Um, a few hundred. Okay, but, but here's the thing, right? Okay, so here's the thing. First of all, people need to understand um, that PCR testing, especially the way that PCR testing works is it basically amplifies, um, uh, it amplifies matter, okay? But there's an amplification rate. It works on something called cycle thresholds, all right? So if I take one and then I spin it to two cycles, it's gonna magnify it, okay? If I go to three, it's gonna magnify it. Four, magnify, 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 right? The way that that test, first of all, it's not supposed to be used for infectious disease. Okay, the guy, Kerry Mullis, who invented that test, won a Nobel Prize for it. And he said, it's not to be used for diagnosing active infectious disease. Right. That's one. Second is that when you look at the cycle thresholds that they're using, you should be running a cycle threshold of around 20 to 25. Okay, 25 is really the upper limit. What, what we're doing here is we're running cycles at 38 to 45. Ooh, that's high. Okay, so what happens is, can you imagine if you had a magnifying glass and you just magnified it more and more and more till eventually you had this thing right in front of your face and you go, holy smokes, it's a virus, right? But it's because <laughs> you're looking at it so closely, that's why. And the problem now, these tests are picking up um, fragments of other viruses. Okay, so there's actually no specific test for SARS-CoV-2. Okay. We can do antibody testing, but that's not what we're doing. We're doing PCR testing. And even antibody testing is questionable. So the point here is that we're ramping up testing. Now, to put that into perspective, when you're running tests at, at 38 to 45 cycles, your false positive rate on the high end is going to be about 97%. Wow. That's not me yeah. saying this. This is doctors, right. the people that deal with these tests, right? Like yeah. doctors, experts are saying that. So even on the low end, you're looking at 50%. Now you tell me if when you, when you map that and marry that to how many people are in hospital, mm -hmm. okay? How many people are in hospital? How many people are dying? And what you're going to see is the cases are doing this and the deaths are doing this. Right. They've maintained very, very steady. Like I forget how long ago, it was maybe two months ago, it, we were at 9,000 total deaths in Canada, right? right. A couple months ago. We're not, we're not at 10,000 yet. Right. Right. And even that 9,900 people, I mean, look, this is to lose a life is never a good thing. Okay. No one wants anyone to die. I feel terrible for people that have lost loved ones in this, but that's not what this is about. You know, we're talking about a very, very small percentage of people. And, and then you start getting into, well, how do you actually, um, since we don't have a hard diagnostic, how are they actually diagnosing this? Right. So if you put on your like died with COVID versus died from COVID, right. those are two very, very different things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when you start looking at all of the stuff, it really starts to unravel pretty quick. And I think that when you then look at what's going on now, I mean, as I was saying to you off air, we're, we're now and it's happening all over the world. But we are now in Ontario um, extending stage two lockdown measures. Okay, I actually have the numbers. I, I, I don't have them up. I should have been a little bit more prepared. But I looked at the numbers from a few days ago. And it's it's insane. I mean, we actually have I think COVID hospitalizations, I might botch the numbers a little bit here. 
but in all of the hospitals that we have in Ontario, which is around 364, the average, if you take that plus all of the COVID patients, mm-hmm. got 0.69 people. Wow. So how less- are they how are they justifying extending the lockdown measures? What are they saying? Because what happens is you're stoking fear, right? You're basically saying, hey, look at the cases, the cases, the cases, the cases are going up, right. the cases are going up. And, you know, you start to get into things like herd immunity, right? So herd immunity, traditionally, you would, you would look at um, 80 to 90%, okay? But what we're starting to see now is that we've got um, cross immunity from the original SARS. We're also looking at um, antibody-mediated immunity when we should be looking at T-cell immunity. Mm -hmm. So it turns out the T cells are offering a lot of immunity, right? There's cross immunity from other coronavirus infections. Uh, So um, a lot of people might know that that flu, uh, the common cold, there's a whole bunch of coronaviruses that cause the common cold. So if you've had any of this before, we're now starting to see that there is some type of protection, there is some type of cross immunity. And uh, I forget what his name is, but um, uh, I think he's an epidemiologist or someone from London, from England, mm-hmm. he started to realize that there's something called, um, it's called the herd immunity threshold or the HIT, the HIT. And the herd immunity threshold, it turns out, is around 16 to 20%. Okay, so meaning that when 16 to 20% of the population are infected, you actually have some type of herd immunity. Now, oh. if you start getting into the numbers, what you're going to see every single graph, I would, I would question you, not cases, right? Not cases. I question you to look at people that have been hospitalized, people that have died, etc. What you're going to see, um, there's a great group. If you're on Facebook, there's a great group called Dr. Frank's um, models. Okay. Dr. Frank's models. Frank's models. Okay. And Dr. Frank is, um, he's a data scientist, as far as I know, and the models and the, the crunching of numbers that this guy does is completely crazy. I mean, it's just, you, you cannot question his data processing. It's, it's, he's that sharp. And I think that group last time I checked was around 50,000 people, maybe more. And he has no anything. He's just, these are the numbers. Just look at the numbers. Every single place, what you've seen is you've seen up and down, right. up and down, just like anywhere else. And the only thing that's now going up, bar perhaps a handful of places around the world, is the cases, right? Because of the testing, and that's questionable in its own right. The, the, and now, but, yeah. Sorry, you were going to say something. No, I was just going to say. So, 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 what's actually happening? If you want to get like get a little bit more technical, the people were always talking about the IFR, right? So the infection fatality rate. So, in other words, out of all the people that are infected, how many people die? Well, look, if you start ramping up the cases. And the numbers of number of deaths and hospitalizations stay like this, and this keeps going higher. Well, what you're going to have is you're going to have the IFR, which the last time the CDC released data was 0.26%. That number is going to go down even further. Way down. Yeah. Way down. So we were told in the beginning that this was going to be somewhere between 4 to 6% of the population. That is flat wrong. It's now somewhere around 0.04% of the population. Right. Okay, now I want you to put this into context of the unemployment rate in Ontario right now, okay, is Mm -hmm. almost a million people. I want you to think about people who are in BC right now, 51, 52% of businesses are not going to be opening back up. I want you to think about the collateral damage of how many there are now a quarter, no, I'm going to botch the numbers again, because I can't remember them off the top of my head. But there are, I think it's a quarter 
of HIV patients around the world cannot access medication. A quarter, all right? People who suffer from tuberculosis cannot access their medication either. Right. People who have had elective surgery, cancers, heart disease, whatever, can't go to the hospital. And you could just, the list keeps going on and on. So coming full circle, sorry to rant, but coming full circle, what people are doing is they are myopically focusing on the virus and they are myopically focusing on deaths and cases and whatnot related to the virus. We need to zoom right out and we need to say, what is the collateral damage from the measures that we are putting in place? And if you can rationalize that to me and justify that to me, hats off to you because you would have a very, very difficult time convincing most people that you can shutter everything for, you know, the, the cure is worse, is worse than the disease. Far worse. Yeah. I mean, people, healthy people lining up to be told that they're sick and they're denying authentically sick people the care that they require. And in many cases, life-threatening situations, they're releasing they're releasing criminals and threatening people with fines and jail time for not complying with these measures. And then there's decades and decades of data to show how suicide rates and deaths of despair go up with every 1% increase of unemployment, which I don't think we've ever seen other than maybe the Great Depression. Have we seen rates of unemployment like this before? Never, no. And you know, again, I forget what the Canada figures are. I think the Canadian figures for, um, basically working age people. So I think it's from the age of 16 up to 65. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're looking at about three and a half million people, give or take, that are unemployed across the country. It's it's around 9%, somewhere around there. But you know, something you just said also jogged my memory, like all of these, you know, we're being told that people are asymptomatic, right? Why are you asymptomatic? Think about that for a hot minute. Okay, can you imagine if I said to myself, you know, I feel perfectly fine right now, nothing really wrong with me. I should probably go and get tested for diabetes, right? (laughs) Like no one does that. So the reason why you have so many people that are asymptomatic is comes back to the testing. Okay. Because you got all of these false positives. So you don't actually have any symptoms. You're not displaying anything, but Mm -hmm. your test was positive. Therefore you are an asymptomatic carrier who could infect other people. That's just not, I'm sorry, but that's just not true. Okay, it's not it's not accurate. It might be true for some people for sure. But 85% of people are asymptomatic, asymptomatic carriers. Yeah, well, I think our Dina Hinshaw here in Alberta was, she had to correct herself because here we are, everybody's masked. And first she said seven out of 1000 asymptomatic people are being tested as positive. And she had to come back the next day and, and, and correct that it's actually seven in 10,000. Seven and ten thousand, and so, and that's with a high false positive rate. So effectively, the number is zero. If you're yeah. asymptomatic, it, it's 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 not even an issue. But yet here we are, requiring our children to sit in masks all day long. It's, I feel like this is where I really have a hard time is with the children. Where's the lack of advocacy for our children, and who's standing up? Not why are, aren't coming. Them- it's, 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 it's here. It's here. People are standing up. Okay. There's stuff Tell going me. on. Um, I will have to get the information to you because it was literally just announced this last weekend. So there are organizations here that are collaborating. I don't know if people know this, but Children's Health Defense, um, who's run by Robert F. Kennedy, yeah. now locked arms with Canada. So they've opened up a Canadian oh, brunch. Oh, great basically. news. 
<gasps> so that's fantastic news because RFK, I mean, he's just, uh, I'm, I consider him a modern day hero. Yes. Um, he's got like nothing to gain from all of this. He's just going for it, you know, following his heart and doing what he knows is right, um, despite what people will, will say about him. And so the fact that they're coming into Canada now, um, they've, I believed, and again, I might get this wrong because it's very fresh information. There's another organization. Um, I want to say that they're called um, Parenting Without Masks or something like that. I forget the name. I'll get the name to you afterwards. So you can put okay. it in the show notes. Sure. But basically, that's an, an organization who is campaigning wholly on behalf of the children. And to basically now start... Um, uh, essentially holding school boards and, um, you know, superintendents and whatnot liable yes. uh, for, for, for these, um, you know, because again, like look at the demographic, right? I mean, I don't know, like there might be one or two people in the world under the age of, um, you know, 15, uh, sorry, I'm going to say 10 years old. I don't think there's anyone under the age of 10 that has died from COVID. Right. Right. And, and even if you like find, you can, cesspools. we're treating them right. like these, spreaders and this word super spreader and and we, we create this like oh it could we don't know but it could and then everybody just spins the story on the other side right they're just given the seed and yep. they just create their own stories of horror on the other side of that and look and i get it fear is real right there's fear i mean i have my own fears around all of this but it sure is not too much about the virus you know that's not what my fear is <laughs> yeah. but i can understand how people would would get there i i get it i understand it um, and, you know, when you hear things like super spreader and you hear um, that, you know, elderly people are dying and we hear all of these things, it's terrible, right? I mean, you wouldn't, no one wants that. No, no rational, you know, good human being wants to see anyone else suffer. Um, so, but, but when you crunch the numbers, I mean, here in Canada, we've had, I think it's 80%, upwards of 80% of COVID related deaths have been in long-term care homes you know, in, in a very, very aged population with comorbidities, whether it's high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, whatever it is, right, chronic respiratory issues already. So if you consider that 80% of that is happening in isolated facilities, in long-term care facilities, when you remove that, what does it look like now in the general population who are just walking around carrying on about their daily business? When you now remove children under the age of 19, Okay. Remember in the beginning, they said, oh, children, World Health Organization studies came out. Oh, children, children can't spread it. Okay, great. What happened in August? Oh, schools are going back. Guess what? Or oh, now children are super spreaders. Right. Watch out. Okay. Oh, put them back in school, test them. Oh my gosh, look at what happened. We tested them with a faulty PCR test. Oh my gosh, look at all these kids now. And fear, 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 right? But when you actually look at the data and you look at the numbers, right go and take just take a look and they don't they do not match with what we're being told no. plain and, and even when it comes to the the elderly population in the care centers they didn't get the proper care they needed people were afraid and started quitting they've been isolated which is a really great way to kill someone Watcher. and they didn't get access and then they were deemed that if they were to be diagnosed with covid they weren't allowed to go into the hospital to get any kind of care so right was this was a COVID related death, but I think the COVID relation is in the measures that were taken and not COVID itself. Like for me, this is like one of the crimes against humanity that is going on now against our elderly population. 
Well, look, and you know, the the um, the military did an investigation into long term care homes. I, I think it was in Quebec, and their report was was shocking. Awful. It was shocking. It was terrible. So I think that when you look at that, you know, there's a lot of variables that need to be factored in there, and it's not just um, you know what did the virus do. It's it's not that. Uh, what were the living conditions? The living conditions are atrocious in a lot of these places. You know, the governments have been promising for years to fix up long-term care homes. And what have they done? They've done nothing. Okay. Because old people are, are a liability on the system, right? You're no longer bringing in income. You're no longer paying income tax. You're a liability on the system. Okay. What we do to our old people in Western society is atrocious. Okay. In indigenous cultures, what you do is you put your elderly people up on a pedestal and you learn from them because they have wisdom. Here, the opposite, yeah, right? Yeah. They're not young, they're not hip, they're not cool, they're not whatever. So you just stick them away somewhere, okay? And I'm not saying that anyone who puts their family member in a long-term care home is a terrible person. I, I'm not saying that at all, all right? I'm just saying generally as a society, okay? Because I also have to go to work. I got to look after my family. If I had an elderly parent here who had Alzheimer's or who had something else, I wouldn't be able to care for them. I would have to put them in a home. So we should be focusing on making those homes better. Yes. Right. Yes. And taking care. And this is, you know, I, I really just, I want to talk about solutions if I can, because people yes. here are clutching at straws here and they're going, oh my gosh, like, what right. is the solution? Okay. What should we do if we can't put masks on and we can't, I, like, we, we don't isolate. What are, what are we going to do? Right. Right. Let me tell you about hydroxychloroquine. Okay. Hydroxychloroquine is a, it's an anti-malarial drug. And this is again, another um, way that the political system spun this, right? Because Donald Trump said that hydroxychloroquine was a solution. Everyone lost their mind and said, oh, what a bunch of BS. And he's wrong. Okay. Um, I will send you an article after this, and you can put this down in the show notes as well. It's a full, it's a, it's a full timeline of the smear campaign against hydroxychloroquine. Okay, great. Okay, it's a smear campaign against hydroxychloroquine because what they were doing with that, all right? Um, first of all, go and take a look at African countries that have malaria and go and take a look at their death rates. Rock bottom, super right. low. Because what they're doing is they're taking hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic against malaria. Okay, they're taking it to prevent malaria. And what do you know? Oh, it prevented COVID. Right. Okay. So the way that the trials were constructed with COVID, with um, hydroxychloroquine and COVID, was they basically they completely strawmanned the whole thing, right? And they said, "Oh well, um, we're going to give it to people who are hospitalized." Pay attention to that word. They're hospitalized. Okay, late stage COVID, right? You're you're more than seventy two hours. You're more than ninety eight hours in. Wrong time to give hydroxychloroquine. Okay, you should not give it to people after three or four days. Okay, first point. Second point is when they were giving it to them, they were not using things like zinc together with it. Mm -hmm. They were using far too high of a dose and they were not using zinc with it. And what they concluded with the big study, right, that was published in one of the big journals, they said, oh, look, when you use hydroxychloroquine, you have a 30% increase in death from COVID. That's what they said. Right. Okay, you have a 30, 36% increase in death. Well, um, it turns out that when you actually get into it and you start looking um, at uh, what some of the, there's a very famous doctor, uh, Luc Montignon, I think his name is, is a French uh, doctor. Last time I looked, he had cured 4,000 patients. Luc Montagnier, and then there's Mont also the guy in New York who's had Zelen 
Zelenko, Dr. Zelenko in yeah. New York as well. So, 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 so they're, they're, they're up on things, right? And they're looking at it as, you know, okay, great. You're showing symptoms right now. You're symptomatic or we've run a test or whatever. Here's the proper dose together with zinc. Okay. And what they do is they go into the cells and they basically inhibit viral replication inside the cell. So we actually have a solution, right? We, we have a couple of other solutions as well that are starting to gain traction because we can now look back. So we do actually have a way to treat people, right? A lot of people are still saying, oh, we're looking for a cure. We're looking for a cure. And I did a, I did a very interesting um, interview with Dr. James Lyons-Weiler. I'm, I'm sure some people might know him. Um, he's done work with RFK, with Dell Big Tree, with Children's okay. Health Defense. He's a very, very smart um, PhD a translational scientist, right? So he's designed studies, he's written books, like he's head and shoulders smarter than I am. And anyway, I found this article, um, I think it was the FDA, or yeah, I think it was the FDA or the CDC. And it's um, emergency authorization use. Okay, so emergency authorization use, it's an act. And it turns out, this is, I still, this question is, is open. If you can find more information and get it to me, please do. But this is my interpretation of it and what I could see on the page. And he invited me onto his podcast to talk about it because he was like, whoa, that's pretty crazy. If you have a cure for something, you cannot use emergency measures to do something else. Okay. What I'm getting at here is if there is no cure, we can say, hey, they're rushing to find a vaccine, aren't they? rushing, rushing, rushing. Oh my gosh, everyone around the world got to find a vaccine. I'll talk about right. vaccines in a minute. Got to find a vaccine, got to find a shot. All right. Well, if you don't have any other solution, you can under the Emergency Use Authorization Act, you can force that on people. You can say, we've got no other solution. We have to stop it somehow. Okay. Here's a vaccine. So I believe, this is what I believe, and I, 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 if someone can correct me if I'm wrong, please do. And if someone can corroborate this, please do as well. But I believe that there's been a smear campaign against any solution, all right? In China, they're using vitamin D. There is so much data on vitamin D right now, it is ridiculous. Cursetin is another one. Yeah. Okay, so cursetin works very much like hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can go to the health food store for 15 bucks. You can go buy yourself a whole bottle. It's cheap. So zinc, cheap, right? Because zinc so and the, the, they have to be used together, right? There's zinc ionophores, the quercetin and the exactly. and even, um, compounds in black seed oil. I yeah. think also helpful. I, I mean, I would say like there's so many different things. I mean, licorice is, is another one. But, but just I think that for me, the things that I've really drilled down on that have the strongest evidence to me is going to be uh, quercetin and zinc together. Okay, because right. quercetin works very much like hydroxychloroquine, and then the zinc um, works synergistically with that to inhibit viral replication inside the cell. So it does a couple of things without getting super technical. It changes the pH inside the cell. So it, it creates this inhospitable environment for viral replication is basically what it does. But coming back to what I was saying, we've, if you have these solutions in place, okay, that are cheap, they're scalable. They can be easily distributed around the world. You can easily get zinc right now, okay? With, you know, all these people, these billionaires that are rushing around trying to find a vaccine, you can buy zinc and quercetin for the whole freaking planet, okay? Right. And everyone can have a dose. Everyone could get hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic, 
Okay. So if you got into contact with someone who was infected, first thing you should do, boom, go. Well, what did the government do, right? They banned hydroxychloroquine now in the US. You can't get it. It's only by prescription. And guess what? It's only available for hospitalized patients. It's only available right. for hospitalized patients, late stage COVID patients, which is the wrong time to be using it. Right. What do you think is going to happen? Oh, we tried hydroxychloroquine and right. guess what? People died. Okay. It's not a solution. Here's the vaccine. Okay. Right. And these, and these solutions that you're talking about are things that we need for good health anyways. So zinc, vitamin D, quercetin yeah. is a great bioflavonoid for all sorts of different things anyways. So what other things would you add to that list for people just for general health so we can be robust and resilient to what's going on? I, what think, that, I, I think that what would help people a lot nowadays um, is also uh, adaptogens right so adaptogenic herbs mm -hmm. um that would be things like ashwagandha licorice root is is really a fantastic adaptogen um i would not recommend it for people with high blood pressure you do have to be a little bit careful but licorice now um you know this was something i wrote about in the, in the early days when we first started going whoa okay what what do we do here uh, licorice was one that came up over and over so it's an adaptogen but it also helps with um viral infections another one would be elderberry you know, elderberry is, is huge. Um, I don't want to get uh, bog us down with technicalities, but I know a lot of people are afraid of the cytokine storm and taking elderberry. Um, I think that those, uh, those concerns have been quite overinflated, actually. Yeah. And, and I don't think there's any harm. But you know what? Go and get your vitamin D levels checked. Um, go, go and check them out. You want to have optimal levels of at least 75, but close to 100. Um, on, on a blood test and make sure that your vitamin D levels stay strong through the winter. Okay. Right. Um, now our levels are the highest because we've come out of the summer, but as we get further and further into the winter, your levels are just going to decline more and more. So that's for you. That's for your children. Um, make sure that your vitamin D levels are up and good old vitamin C, you know, right. nothing wrong, nothing wrong with plain old ascorbic acid, uh, you know, the anti everything. Right? right. So, and it's also very good for adrenal function. Right, key for adrenal function and for stress. So I think that managing stress, adaptogenic stuff, and then you know some of the um, immunity, antiviral type things um, that that we've spoken about. Because you also don't want to be taking um, antivirals all the time. It's it's not a good thing. Even antimicrobials, generally speaking, I don't like to take them all the time because right. you know you got to start wondering what's it doing to our microbiome, your your gut bacteria, and so forth. Um, right, you want to maintain that diversity, right? So exactly. there's that that yeah. balance. Yeah, probiotics, you know, eating fermented food, probiotics, I know it might seem, you know, pretty benign for a lot of people, but don't underestimate the fact that 70% of your immune system is in your gut. Um, you know, so taking care of your microbiota, your microbiome, it, it's 70% uh, of your immune resiliency is right there. Right there. Um, yeah, I just finished uh, pounding with my feet 100 pounds of cabbage for my yearly uh, Oh, wow. Sauerkraut okay. production. <laughs> hey, nice. Wow. You can have ferments for the whole year. Huh? <laughs> That's what I do. I'm on my last big jar from last year, actually. So it's perfect timing. Awesome. Yeah. There's a really great story around. I think it was the smallpox death rate was reduced during the American Civil War from 90% to 10% using sauerkraut alone. Oh, wow. Okay. I yeah. didn't know that. I've looked Crazy. that up. I can't, I think it's that it's about this. The numbers again might not be quite right, but it was a significant just by enhancing the diversity of the microbiome and of course, enhancing immune function as a result. Yeah. And again, you know, we're starting to see um, so, so much of this, sorry, I just got to close down a couple notifications here. Um, 
we're, we're starting to see more and more of this. I mean, the data is in when you look at your intestinal immunity, you know, that's something that I measure um, for pretty much all of the clients I work with in my clinic. Uh, I'm actually doing stool tests where we can track and measure your intestinal immune system, you know, which is huge. And the amount of people that I see where their immune system is depressed and they're not, they don't even really know it. It's right. pretty crazy. Yeah. So that again is just coming directly back to your, um, gut bacteria and, and so on. So what would you say then in terms of um, the sanitizing that are going on, the isolating that is going on, like how is this impacting our microbiomes and our immune system? Well, look, you know, we need to also realize that we are heading very rapidly towards what's called the uh, post-antibiotic apocalypse, okay? And what that means is that we, I'll try and keep it short, but if you look at the overprescription of antibiotics, okay, so every time you go to the doctor, you've got a cold, a flu, you've got something going on, you get antibiotics, right? Most antibiotics, however, are actually put in animal feed, okay? So they're actually put routinely, routinely into chicken feed, for example. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they do that is not to prevent disease. It's because antibiotics make you fat, okay, to fat. So now you got to wonder, we're sitting with an obesity epidemic and we're eating antibiotic <laughs> yeah. food, the plot thickens. But anyway, um, so I think when you look at that, when you look at the overuse of, of things like Roundup um, and glyphosate, which is just so pervasive in the food system now, lots of, lots of studies showing now that that wrecks the gut microbiome as well. Okay, so there's another hit. So um, the problem is we haven't developed any new antibiotics. Drug companies are not developing antibiotics anymore. They're not putting any more research money into that bar a handful of people because there's no money to be, to be made in antibiotics anymore. And the reason for that is that when you create an antibiotic, the, the sort of blue sky that you're shooting for is you want to create a broad spectrum antibiotic that treats many different things, right? And what they found is that it's very difficult to do that. So they can create antibiotics that are very narrowly focused on certain pathogens, but what happens from a, from a business standpoint, um, I forget which, which illness or pathogen it was, but they basically developed this whole drug. It took them 10 years and they eradicated the disease by 90%. So at the end of it all, they had no one left to sell the, the <laughs> drug. Right. Well, that's not good business, I guess. Right. It's not good business, right? You need repeat customers, which, which you know, I understand. Hey, millions of dollars going into R&D and all of that stuff. So this is, this is the problem with the, when we say post-antibiotic apocalypse, is we don't have any antibiotics and in the future something as simple as a cut or a scrape which would have just been you know put some polysporin on it and throw a band-aid uh, maybe that's not going to work anymore and if you get into a hospital setting and pick up a resistant bacterial infection you it could kill you you know so coming back to your question um i think that we're doing ourselves a great disservice by over sanitizing um by isolating ourselves especially for children whose immune systems are developing you know, your immune system is fully intact by age seven. So those formative years, you know, you really want to be outside, you want to be mingling, you want to be socializing, um, you want to pick up those uh, childhood, you know, colds and flus and whatnot. Um, I've got three children. And I've noticed with them that uh, they always in the early years in daycare, they would get sick a lot, you know, not not brutally sick, but runny noses, green snot all the time, cough, cold, whatever. And as they got older, you know, as they get to five, six, seven years old, they don't get sick anymore. 
very rarely. So this is building resiliency from an immune perspective. And I think that the isolation and the over sanitizing and the excessive mask wearing and stuff like that, it's doing a number on our immune development. Yeah. You know, and, and I wondered to myself, you know, I, I just, I don't know this for sure because time will tell, but I wondered to myself, if your immune system is crippled like that, and then you do get an infection, what's the first thing you're going to do? Go to the doctor and then you're going to get antibiotics, right? right. You're going to double down on that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think also from a mental health perspective, you know, I, I think that isolation is just, uh, and even sanitizing for that matter, you know, this over sanitizing, over isolation. Um, I took my kids to the zoo um a month ago or so never been to the zoo here lived here for 17 years and decided hey we're gonna go and it was it was crazy you know because we're there walking around with the kids and my little guy he's like very um he's very like loud and outspoken and he's a lot of fun and so he was just cruising around jumping on the rocks and stuff and there was this young girl sitting with her mom she had to be 14 or 15 and i could see that every time my son came close to her she just recoiled and she had a mask and she was just doing this and she was kind of like burying her head in her mom's armpits and i just thought to myself oh man like the the level of anxiety that you have over this and Um, young children who are supposed to be in their immune prime their physical prime like these 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 aren't people who are at threat and i just feel like like i just want to tell the parents like it's up to you to ensure that your child knows that they are strong and their body knows what to do and you just nourish them like like the anxiety that's going to come out of this on top yeah. of it. Yeah. I've seen oh. other, um, I've seen other teenagers walk around with tape measures um, to ensure that people, oh. are, people are six no. feet away. Yeah. So I've seen that and just freak out. Like if anyone comes close um, to them. And so, you know, I think that there's, um, there's a certain level of irrational fear that is kind of, um, you know, bubbling up around all of this. And I think, you know, fear itself is not a bad thing. Um, I, I think that we, should teach our children to be cautious, I think is fine. And, you know, like, we'll go around and maybe, okay, we're at a public place and you touch something and you're about to eat. Well, sure, wash your hands, whatever, you know. But that's normal behavior that we've always done with right. with our children, you know. Right. And I think now, um, you know, something that we've really consciously tried to do with our kids here is to really not talk about what's going on all that much. And to not make a big deal out of it, you know, so yeah, sure, we had to stay at home for a while. Okay, you know, there's something going on out there. Some people are getting sick. That's it. We just have to stay at home. You know, they decided to close school. End of conversation. You know, they don't need to know that the world is falling apart and there's all this crazy <laughs> shit going on, you know, like, yeah. it's going to freak them out. Um, so, yeah, there's yeah. so much information a little kid can handle. And like, there, there's age appropriate times to for different exposure to different types of information i think but yeah. tra- so you don't traumatize them yeah, and even my daughter who's 13 you know I've, she's a very level-headed kid and she's she's definitely got her head on her shoulders um she kind of knows what's up you know she she knows what's up we haven't spoken about it much but she knows what's going on and she's like well you know for her though she just wants to see her friend so she's like i don't care if i have to wear a mask i feel fine you should flimsy little cloth mask it doesn't do anything anyway you know but she wears it and goes to school and she's like i get to see my friends i don't care and i'm like you know what if you're happy i'm happy that's okay okay if you start if you start mandating vaccines we're gonna have a whole nother conversation yeah that's where things are gonna um escalate pretty quick i think for a lot of people and if i may i don't know if you're under a time constraint here but I, i would just like to um if i can 
Yes, go, um, go. I just want to, I want to, I really just want to talk about the, the vaccine issue here, because I think that, you know, a lot of people are questioning what is the end point, right? What's the point of all of this? And I won't go too far down the rabbit hole for folks. Um, you know, I don't want to lose people and I don't want to, you know, I don't want people to think I'm completely nuts. Um, but when you, the, the end point here, the end point is going to be mass vaccination. That is the end goal. Okay, there's other things that are orbiting around that, but that is going to be the end goal. That is what they're shooting for. Okay, this is why there's no cure. This is why the cases keep going up. Every single thing that you can justify to keep this thing alive is 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 now um, marching along while we develop a vaccine. And I want people to know a couple of very, very critical pieces of information about the vaccine that's being developed. Okay. Most of the vaccines that are showing the most promise, first of all, are what are called RNA vaccines. Okay, these are not RNA diseases. Okay, these are RNA vaccines or mRNA vaccines, so messenger RNA. And basically what they're doing is they're, they're um, getting your cells of your body to code immunoproteins, right? So if you're exposed to a virus, they basically make a protein to dock to the virus and to neutralize it, right? That, that's the mechanism. Um, and I probably, if you're a hardcore scientist watching this, I'm sure I botched that. Okay, I'm trying to bring it down here. <laughs> Don't crucify me. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I want people to know that there has never, ever been an RNA vaccine that has been approved for human use ever. Okay, most of them have barely gone through animal trials. Right. Okay, so I want you to know that, first of all, that would be a world first if we ever got it to work. And Second, so why didn't they get past animal trials? They didn't work, they were dangerous. Safety issues mostly. Um, actually, sorry, I'm gonna back up on that. Um, for as far as I know, they, they can't get it to work. Okay, they can't get it to work. Now, the original SARS, um, which was 2003, 2004, so we're going back 16, 17 years now. The original SARS, I don't know if you remember this, but when this is when I first came to Canada. And, they had SARS stock. They flew out the Rolling Stones and ACDC and they got half a million people out on the runway to have a big party, right? I don't remember that at all. Oh, wow. This okay. was in Toronto. Yeah, so much for isolation and um, <laughs> yeah. stay, stay home and save each other. It was like go and have a big wild party in the middle of an, of an airport, right? And, right. Uh, so, um, but since then, they've actually been trying to figure out how to get a coronavirus vaccine to work. Okay, so for 17 years, they've been trying to figure out because there's the coronavirus vaccine is oh sorry, coronavirus is a family of of viruses, right? Right. They have yet to to design and create a vaccine that is effective against any coronavirus. Right. Okay, I want you, so never an RNA vaccine has been shown to work or get approved for human use. We've never ever been able to develop an effective vaccine against a coronavirus. Those are two major major points that people need to always bear in mind. The third point is that um, the original SARS vaccine that they tried to develop, right? Okay, so SARS-1, they put that through animal trials. They did four animal trials on ferrets. The researchers at the end of those trials concluded that you should not proceed with, animal, with, with human trials at all. They said you should not proceed with, with human trials at all because the side effects were so horrific in animals. Right. Okay. So here we are. Fast forward. Dr. Paul Offit, the godfather of vaccines, the inventor of vaccines, right? Again, if you want some of this information, I can send you videos. Don't take it from me. Listen to it straight from him. He's on record on a video. It's about 25 minutes. 
and Dr. Poloff is being interviewed by a doctor. And the doctor says, well, look, what's going to have to happen here, right? If we get this, if we rush this to market, what's going to have to happen? Well, people should know that regular, these are some of the sort of paraphrasing here from his talk. Uh, normally, a vaccine takes 20 to 26 years to develop. Okay, first 20 to 26. 20 to 26. The MMR vaccine is the one that has been the quickest so far to get to market, which was five and a half years. Okay, right. five and a half years. We're how many months in now? Not even a year. Right. nine months in eight months in okay hey we're ready on phase three trials yeah right well here we go right now i'll get back to those trials in a second so so we've got this um so first of all we, you, you you're gonna have to rush it okay so when asked what do we have to cut out if we want to rush this to market you're gonna have to cut out animal studies so no animal trials all right two you're gonna have to cut out large population studies Okay, so you can't do the 60, 70, 100,000. Okay, I know some companies are doing that now, right? Johnson and Johnson, I believe is doing that. But the point here is that you're cutting out a lot of the checks and balances that are normally in place to ensure safety and efficacy before you bring it to market. Okay, this is Paul Offit on the record. He said, we will only know if it's safe and effective once we have released that out into the general public. Out. Okay, I'm going to say that again. We will only know if it's safe and effective once it's out there in the general public that is on record. I will show you the video after this. All right. Now, I want you to think about something else. The AstraZeneca uh, studies, AstraZeneca. Okay. They were, uh, their study was 45 participants, first of all, very small, very small. They screened 11,000 people to get those 45 participants. Oh, wow. Okay. Because they need healthy, healthy people, right? Right. Do you do you think that they chose the most vulnerable of our population, <laughs> yeah. or do you think they chose the most robust? All right. They chose the most robust, least likely to react people. Okay, for that study. Now, when they reported their results, which was really a press release, they didn't actually report any methodology. They didn't report anything. They reported the results on fifteen people. First of all, don't know what happened to the other thirty. I have no idea. I don't know why they didn't report on forty-five people. No idea. Hmm. Even if you had a control, which I don't think they had, by the way, um, this is another point here for vaccinations in general, there is no vaccine to date that has a double blind placebo controlled safety study done on it, period. Okay, they're all using adjuvants, they're using other things that are not saline solutions. So anyway, 15 people get reported on, right? So this is what they release in their data. Turns out that 20% of those people had grade three medical reactions that required hospitalization and medical attention. So grade 20%. three meaning? How grade, three, grade three, um, well, I think when you get to grade four and five, like that's very, very severe. So grade three is not severe, but it requires hospitalization. It requires right. medical attention. Significant. Okay? Mm -hmm. These are in healthy volunteers, correct? These are not in right. aged sick people with diabetes and heart disease and whatnot. So 20% of the people, right? Now, um, we, don't know, we don't know exactly what happened to them, but I want you to consider now that, A, we don't know what happened to the other 30 people. I have no idea. But if you extrapolate 20% onto the American population, you're looking at about 74 million people that are going to have some type of adverse reaction to that particular vaccine and are going to require hospitalization and medical attention. Right. Okay, so anyone that's trying to tell me that this is about um, helping people, like, let's just zoom back out here. Okay, what are we talking about with COVID numbers? Okay, if we've got a population of Canada of 38 million people, 
right? 10% is what? 3.8 million? Mm -hmm. 20% is 7.6? Okay, so you're trying to tell me that for a disease that we have right now during a pandemic that's killed almost 10,000 people, okay, and hospitalized not much more, you're going to jeopardize potentially 7.8 million people? Right. And now the government is securing doses, right? They're pre-ordering, they're pre-buying the vaccines all over the world now for when they're ready. So I just want people to understand these things because you're not going to hear this in many other places. Okay. You're going to hear the romanticized version. You're going to keep hearing the narrative that we need a solution. We must find a solution. We have to have a solution. Okay. And I'm telling you right now that there are some world firsts that are going to have to happen. If this is going to be the solution, if we can somehow find a safe and effective vaccine that is going to be easily scalable and distributed around the world, that's legitimately going to help people. Let's do it. All right. I'm telling you that would be like a miracle. Right. And to further this here, um, I will also say that the SARS-CoV-2 virus, when you look at the proteins, they share a lot of the same proteins as human tissue. Right. Okay, and I'm saying that very, like, very lay terms here. So the point here is that if you don't remove those from the vaccine, you will induce autoimmunity. Okay, there are studies now showing that right. you will trigger autoimmunity in people. It's, some, it's a, something called pathogen priming. You will also become more susceptible to reinfection, which we're seeing now in China as well, right? We're seeing people getting infected for a second or third time. Okay, mm -hmm. pathogen priming is what it's called. So people can go and look that up. But there are, you know, my point in saying all of this, I know it's a lot for people to digest, but my point in saying all of this is I want you to just think critically about what is going on here. And I want you to think critically about some of the solutions that are being pushed forward and why they're being pushed forward so hard. Right. When we have hydroxychloroquine, when we have zinc, quercetin, vitamin D, vitamin C, you know, sauerkraut, all of these things are readily available to most people. Yet we're not talking about them. No, we're not. And people are getting, getting threatened for saying such things as well. It's like, how dare you talk about good, healthy practices? Hey, I've been I've been smeared online. Let me tell you, I've actually had to pretty well abandon Facebook. Um, I got notified from them that they were throttling my my accounts. Wow. So this was back in December already. This was before all of oh, this. Oh, really? Because I've been talking about a lot of the stuff for a long time now. And I'm very vocal about things because I'm passionate about it. Right. I understand what's going on. So they, uh, yeah, they basically said, you know, hey, we're throttling your page. No one's going to see your posts. Um, you know, you've got three and a half thousand people following you, give or take, and no one's going to see what you post. So, and they, they were right. They did it. I then had over the summer, I had my website and my email service completely hacked by bots. Um, oh. So my whole business got flagged as a spam account. I couldn't email anyone for even, even through my personal email. I was having trouble for about two months. So I had to go through this whole, all these hoops and checks and balances and whatever. I mean, it's stressful. Like this is your livelihood that you're talking about. You know, Absolutely. this is my work. Absolutely. And so, so make no mistake that um, the stuff that's going on out there, you know, if, if you just think that it's a bunch of yahoos that are making noise about this and that are overly fearful, I want you to really understand that there's a much bigger agenda that's going on behind all of this. And people like myself have actually felt the brunt of what's going on. Absolutely. And a, and a critical thinker would see, wow, here's a guy just making a living. And despite that, still says his truth and is still trying to get that message out there. What do you have to gain? Why would you like that's what people think like you're saying that 
you know, honestly, it's like I, I, I took a huge step back from social media because it was causing me mental health problems for myself and anxiety because wow. you put something out there and you just get slammed by people. Right. Wow. And it's like I'm like I'm not here to go and get in, into fist fights with people on social media. I could care less. You know, honestly, you believe what you want to believe. But if you go and actually look at the data and you look at what's going on and you understand the history of all of this you will know that this did not come out of nowhere. This is not just some freak of evolution or anything like that. This okay. is a very, very well orchestrated plan. And I will say, um, I don't want, you know, I, I won't go so far as to say, you know, um, the virus was engineered in a lab because I know that's controversial. Um, I won't go Probably so far. As, <laughs> okay. A lot of people, Nobel Prize winners are saying that yeah. there's, um, you know, scientists and researchers from China that are saying that. So that's not me saying it. But I think I would, I would maybe also stop myself short of using the word pandemic because it kind of puts you in this whole category of right wing conspiracy, not, you know, flat earther 5G group. And, and I don't want to be in that group because I'm not in that group. I, I want people to understand that you, you need to start increasing your level of awareness and your discernment. Okay, because a cop out is to call someone a conspiracy theorist. It's yeah. a lazy way of thinking. It shows that you have not taken the time to think about this at all. And all that's happening is you're triggered to, to someone is, is showing you up, right? Someone is forcing you to think differently about something and you're too lazy to do it. So you just call them a flat earther, a 5G conspiracy theorist, would pick whichever label you want. And that's easy for you, right? Because you can walk away now with a feather in your cap and go and sleep at night, right. okay? If you actually go and look at things, there's <laughs> conspiracy facts are going on right now. Absolutely, right? they're not hidden. They're not hidden. They're just not in the mainstream, but they're not hidden. You don't have to take very long to find some very alarming facts out there. Or just go back to your basic math and look at the government numbers in terms of deaths and knowing that those are inflated numbers in themselves. Yeah. Like, like just some I just, really I just want, things. I want people to, to think, you, you know, I, I believe that we're under some type of collective psychosis right now. Okay. And for anyone that thinks that there's this small group of conspiracy theory theorists that have lost their mind, I want you to think about something, right? How is it that those people are growing in number and becoming more aware, right? Who's telling them it's not CNN, it's not Fox news. It's not Google or Facebook or anyone like that. People are starting to look at the situation and go, holy shit, there is something up here. Something doesn't feel right. And people are waking up to that. And, and that's where we're at. So, you know, that movement, that the march that we spoke about earlier in Toronto, that's been going on for 27 consecutive weeks. 27 wow. weeks. Every Saturday, a group of people gets there. That Every big? Saturday. Is it that big? No. This so this is, is what I was going to say. In the beginning, it was 100 people. It was less than 100 people. Okay. Now... It was almost 7,000 people last weekend. Wow. You know that that's going to get more and more. And what are you trying to tell me? You, you just think that all of these people are uneducated idiots that have just been co-opted somehow by conspiracy narratives? Like, come on, right. give me a break. You know, right. these are people that are fighting for their rights, but they're fighting for the rights of their children. They're fighting for their livelihoods. They're fighting for their life savings, for their homes. Okay. That's what they're fighting for. And I'm not saying that we need to go back to some type of normal that we had because that wasn't working either. But mark my words, the path that we're taking right now is definitely not the place that we need to be going. All right. Mm -hmm. There's there's some sinister stuff going on in the background. 
And so hopefully one of the other silver linings is that what wasn't working will fall away. And it looks a little bit scary as we move through it. But what I hope to see is that it'll just fall away and it'll be exposed for what it is. And then we, we can build, rebuild something that's actually going to serve us. And I, you know, I 100% agree with you. And I think that is exactly where we're going. When you look at the work of people like Rocco Galati, and you look at what some of these folks are doing, um, I, I don't necessarily have full faith that we're going to overthrow any kind of system by using the system. All right, there's an old thing that says you can't dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. Okay, and, and, I, and I believe that to be true. So I think, though, that what we're going to see, and this is what I would love to see, is I would love to see the decentralization of everything. I would also love to see people put in power that are working for the people, that are, that are one of us. Okay, the leaders historically, if you look, look back through time, okay, the leaders walked among the people. The chiefs walked with their people, right? They stood in front and they said, right, we're going into battle. Who's with me? Get behind right. me, right? Now, the leaders are so disconnected from reality and from society that they're sitting in their ivory towers, they're pushing buttons, they're commanding troops, but they're never actually part of what is going on at all. They're disconnected. So I would like to see that I would, I would like to see people like us, people like you and me, not putting my hat in the ring by any stretch here, but I would like to see normal people, right, who are willing to work for the people who are not willing to succumb to corporate interests and hijacking and whatnot. That is where we need to go if we want to turn the ship around. And I can tell you the people that are, are in power now, they, yeah. they've, they're done. They've, they're bought and paid for, you know, the scientists as, as well as the politicians. Yeah. Um, you know. It's alarming, the corruption. I mean, there's so few politicians. You've got Randy Hillier in Ontario that's right. like that. Uh, we've, we've, I don't know, other than him, I don't think there's any, there might be some who might be a little less vocal, less Bought, but they're not willing to stand up like that. And it's alarming how few are. Well, you know, look, it's it's difficult and I totally get it. You know, you're talking about your livelihood. You're talking about people's careers. So even if you're a medical professional, if you're a doctor or if you're a naturopath or if you're a chiropractor or anyone like that who disagrees with the narrative, you are being forced into silence by your governing bodies, by your regulatory bodies. And if you step out of line, you will lose your license and your practice will be shut down and you will not be able to continue with your life. So I think that's what's going on, because I think if you actually start tapping into the silent majority or the silent minority, whichever way you want to cut that, you're going to find that if you spoke to people, frankly, one on one off the record, you're going to find that there are more and more and more health professionals, doctors, virologists, immunologists, epidemiologists, whichever one you want. There's a, there are thousands of them around the world that are starting to come together oh. and they're saying, this is not right. Something is not right here. Yeah. Okay. I want people to know as well that uh, last weekend or the weekend before, there were 1.3 million people that gathered in Germany to protest. Wow. Yeah. 1.3 million. Okay. So the uprising is real. It is happening right now. And we, we must keep up the pressure in whatever way we can while also protecting ourselves and also looking after our sanity and our mental health. Yeah. Okay. So it's a fine line. It's a tightrope. It is. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to end. I mean, awesome. there has to be effort put forth, but uh, yeah, it's going to take a while, I think. Well, I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Great points made there. And everybody, please check out Brett Hawes's work. He's at 
Am I going to get this right? Holistic yep. Health Masterclass. Yeah, if you just type that in, I'm the only one with that uh, name. So you'll uh, Holistic Health Masterclass. Yep, uh, that, that'll be me. Um, and I've, you know, if you want to go back into my podcast archives, um, I've got three years. I'm starting up season four now. Uh, so there's some really good content there um, that's maybe not directly pointed to some of the stuff we're talking about, but it's definitely um, revolves around that, you know, podcasts with Del Bigtree, um, with James nice. Lyons Weiler. Um, so I've had like, you know, um, some, some good people on the show. If you want to dive into some of these topics a little bit deeper um, and get exposed to other people who are, you know, kind of in their own space um, doing this type of work, um, please go back and listen to the podcast. You can find that on all of the um, podcast apps. Uh, it's Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. And um, yeah, so I would love your support. Subscribe, do whatever you can. Please. I don't have any advertising on there either. It's just just talk, you know. Right. So. And I think just the other ones that aren't maybe necessarily relevant, relevant right now, it's just good information for the average person to just totally. support their health, to be robust, to be strong, to be healthy, to be mentally well, physically well, strong. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Hey, if there's one thing this whole pandemic has shown us is that um, our health is not in the best shape. We are not resilient from a health standpoint no. whatsoever. No, yeah. no. And it's time for us to take control of that. It doesn't mean we can't go to professionals and other people to help us, but it's us who has to actually take the reins on that and take exactly, that. Control. Exactly. Yeah. Self-responsibility. 100%. All right. Hold on one sec. I'm going to stop. So thank you for joining us. Please share this with your friends. Please share this with your family. I know there's a lot of people out there that are going to benefit from this information. There's a lot of people that are they're not necessarily decided where they're on, where they're at with current events. I think the more we move through this, the more people are going to start to question who really believe the narrative in the beginning. So if you know people like that, if you're somebody like that yourself and you've benefited, then please share because we are stronger together. 100%. Thank yeah. you. Again. Thank you.